Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, May 2nd, the old-timey lesbian edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. And joining me from New York today is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Christina. Thank you for coming on our week, so to speak. No problem. I kind of forgot this was your week. (laughs) I've taken it over like a podcast pirate. Uh, With June in Slate's Brooklyn studio is New York Magazine editorial director Noreen Malone. How's it going, Noreen? what's going on? This is our, um, the last time we all did a show together was Australia. Yeah, last time we did, we were doing this. We were in Sydney Opera House. God damn it. And here I am alone in this like dim, drab <laughs> DC studio with no view of the harbor. Amazing. It's in my rider, a view of the harbor. I don't know why yeah. it was not provided to me. <laughs> um, before we get started, June, I hear you have something to promote an announcement. I do. I just want to remind people one more time that Slate has an amazing day of programming available to anyone in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And we have a little bit more news about our 10 a.m. presentation, a a show that we're sharing with Outward. It'll be a boozy brunch and we can announce our amazing special guest, Ms. Cracker, who has written many times for Slate and was, of course, a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, will be joining us, as will the first lady of New York City, Shirley McRae. We are going to have such a fantastic show. We're very excited. And you can join us by buying your ticket at slate.com slash live. That's on Saturday, June 8th. I almost can't believe what a star-studded show that's going to be. <laughs> it's going to be fun. That's what Charlene and, and Ms. Cracker are saying right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. All right. So this week on the show, we are going to start off with a New York Times piece that really touched a nerve with a lot of readers, particularly women. Uh, it was about how highly educated women in heterosexual couples are stepping back from their careers so their husbands can work crazy long hours and make tons of money. That's not necessarily the fairest description of the article, but we'll get into it in a couple minutes. Then we're going to talk about Olivia Munn, who came out with a scathing essay against the Go Fug Yourself fashion blog. She was one of a couple of celebrities who've gotten angry at critical journalists and bloggers in recent weeks. And finally, we're going to review Gentleman Jack, a new HBO and BBC series about a real-life old-timey lesbian in 1830s England. And uh, Noreen, why don't you tell us about our Slate Plus segment? We are talking about a new app to divide household chores on asking, is it sexist to need an app in your relationship in order to amicably split the household chores? Here's a little sneak peek of our conversation. I was thinking, you know, just the act of listing these tasks could be genuinely useful. You know, just it, it's too bad that it might be necessary because we should have a sense of what is involved in being an adult and kind of maintaining a home. 
But if if I do this, I get a reward. Therefore, it's optional. That is a very perverse disincentive. And if you want to hear more, become a Slate Plus member at slate.com slash the waves plus. Your first two weeks are free. All right. The greedy professions. It's a phrase I had never heard of. Uh, It describes jobs that require very long hours and always being on call, lawyering, doctoring, consulting. The New York Times ran a piece last week called Women Did Everything Right, Then Work Got Greedy. Noreen, give us a synopsis. Yeah, this piece, um, I feel like, put a lot of pieces together for me. Like, it shouldn't have been as revelatory as it was, and yet somehow it was. So the basic premise of the article is shown through one illustrative couple, um, who, by the way, remind me a lot of a couple that I happen to know. They're both lawyers. They both went to law school. And the thing about being a lawyer is that the more hours you work, the more money you make. And it's not like a one-to-one ratio. Like you work 10% more hours, you make 10% more money. It's more like you work 20% more hours and you make like 200% more money, right? So what happens in couples like that is they sort of take a look once they have children and like one person is going to be the person who's available on call for work at all times. And then the other person has to as the article put it, keep the children alive, which was just like very like, <laughs> like, like sounded like we were on the frontier, you know? We are. Um, but also, I think it, that did a good job of like making it seem essential. Like you're, it's not just that, oh, you're playing more games with your children or something. Like if you're not there, they're not going to go to the dentist. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Um, or eat. You know. right. Or eat. Yeah. Right. And so what this did put into focus was the way that work has gotten more demanding, which is something that, you know, people have been complaining about for a while, sort of in a just slightly separate lane. And in another separate lane, people have been complaining about how parenting got more demanding. Everything is getting demanding. So people sort of divide and conquer. And it just so happens that more often than not, it happens to be the woman who is saying, you know, I'm going to like cut back to half time. And I just found this. Yeah, it, it just was so clarifying for me. And maddening, of course, and all that stuff. How did, what was your reaction, guys? My first reaction was that I I wanted it to more deeply and explicitly grapple with the sexism that undergirds the fact that you know women are almost always the ones as as the article lays out like women are almost always the ones in, the, in a heterosexual couple to be the ones to take on the part-time job or whatever mm-hmm. but then the more i thought about it the more i thought maybe the power of this article and the reason why it touched a nerve for so many people was that it didn't do that much editorializing mm-hmm. and there were just a lot of statistics and i think a lot of women just feel relief almost to see it laid out in these sort of black and white dispassionate terms because it means like this thing that they've sort of observed but maybe has never clicked into a pattern like it is a systemic issue it's not their fault it's not just like oh your husband sucks or like your mm-hmm. relationship is difficult to manage or something like that and and I also liked the way it put a value on the work of childcare and household management the piece that I have been thinking about since reading the article is this idea that women don't step back from the workforce because they have rich husbands. They have rich husbands because they step back from the workforce. So in other words, like their work 
at home actually enables their husbands to make a lot of money. And we talked about this a little bit in an Is It Sexist segment about Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos's divorce. And the legal default in many states when a divorce happens is to split the marital assets in half. And in most cases, that actually makes a lot of sense because you're making decisions as a team in a marriage. You're taking care of responsibilities together. And in most marriages, when that happens, like if one person is making more money, the other person especially in the context that this article lays out where now in a lot of professions it really is the more you work, the more money you make. The the person who's making less money and working less is doing more of the job that makes the rest of their life work. Yeah, one thing that felt very important to me that was less explicit, something that's related to the things that we've all been saying, like the more you work, the more you earn. But it's not actually a guarantee. This is not, we're not in the era or the segment of the workforce where, you know, you if you work more than your basic hours, you get paid overtime and therefore you're guaranteed that your work will be explicitly rewarded. There's still something of a gamble on this. You know, just because you work more hours, you're not definitely going to get that 200% extra. Some people will, and that is the system, but there's no guarantee. And I think one thing that yeah, at least maybe I was reading through the lines or reading between the lines and projecting too much is that in this gamble, which is how I see it, the it's makes it's kind of a better bet for the man to do the extra work because the chances are smaller that he will not be rewarded. It feels to me. I think that's just kind of a maybe implicitly a gamble that people make. Like, yes, there are all kinds of other reasons, but there's a there's no, there are no guarantees in this particular type of greedy profession. You know, there's not even a clear ladder. You might become partner. You might keep going on the path of these professions where a lot of people are kind of shed along the way. But to keep repeating, there are no guarantees. And that also feels like a little bit of a factor here. You can work all the hours God sends. It doesn't mean you definitely will get rewarded amply. You might, but you might not. Yes, that's definitely true. Although I think in professions like law and consulting, the more available you are to clients, uh, the more valuable you are, right? Which is part of why those are so-called greedy. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you want to take on, like, if you want to become a partner, there's an expectation that you will, if you want to make all that money, you're going to be available at all times. Yeah, but not everybody makes partners. I mean, not everybody makes partner. We all know people, I'm sure, who did all the hours of the associate and, and was on the path and then just wasn't selected and they weren't rewarded for those hours. Many were, but it's not, not everybody will be. Yeah. I mean, the thing I keep thinking about, so I don't have children, but I work a job that feels greedy often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues at New York Magazine wrote an article a few weeks ago called, I don't remember the exact title, but the basic principle was outsourcing adulthood. And she was sort of looking at the way young people, millennials, but also older people are just taking advantage of so many of these like delivery systems, Mm -hmm. like paying through the teeth. So someone will do your laundry, drop off your groceries like, uh, you know, everyone's paying a premium to do this. The thing that clicked for me reading that article, because I do some of this, is it just like no one has time to both manage their own life and manage their work. Right. Mm -hmm. And like. People are getting screwed at the margins, whether it's like paying, you know, five dollars to have Amazon drop off the you know, groceries you didn't have time to do. Like everyone, everyone needs a wife in the mm-hmm. 1950s sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trouble is the people don't want to be 1950s wives. Yeah. But like the, the there's like even more of a demand for it than there was in 1950. Like there's even more of a lopsided relationship to work. Well, and the other thing that I keep thinking about is like, why? 
why do people feel this pressure, right? Like, in some ways, it's like once you start making a certain amount of money, you feel maybe guilt. Like, you need to, you need to like, justify the amount of money your employer is paying you. But that's kind of a weird right. mindset, right? Yeah. I also think that people are... There's a perceived sense of precarity even yes, among absolutely. the like, you know, upper, upper middle class, upper class, whatever you want to call the group of people that we're talking about here where they're, you know, the couple is making a decision that one person's going to make partner in a law firm and eventually make a million dollars a year. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's not a precarious financial position. And yet they're sort of people like that are sort of looking at the world and saying, well, it's really more winner take all than ever. Mm-hmm. And for my family, like we can't we must be the winners. And so people yeah. just like there is this panic and i think that explains some of the like intensity with which people approach parenting like the world is harder than ever it's more doggy dog than ever and so my kid is going to get all the like parental attention that will set him up for success so he's one of the haves and not one of the have nots like there's this total anxiety that i think is driving the decisions of the highest earners well and, and it's so easy to work so many hours now i mean recently for a series of podcasts with Slate that was called Working Second Acts. I spoke with Patty Stonecipher, who was, I think, the first female senior vice president at Microsoft, who went then went to lead the Gates Foundation Philanthropy. And, she, you know, she, I was talking about how many hours she worked, because when she was at Microsoft, she had small children. And she said that she always worked long hours, like that's just how she works. She Whenever she's working, she will be working long hours. But you didn't have a computer with you at all times. You didn't have a way for people to contact you at all times then it, because of mobile phones or smartphones and, or whatever. We're going to make myself sound like a thousand years old by not quite knowing what to, <laughs> tell, what to call them. But, you know, she would work, go have dinner with her family, then do more. Uh, like now, there really aren't any times where you're unreachable, except maybe on a plane or in the shower. And that the fact that you can be reached even if you don't have that high level kind of job, I know like I always am checking my phone just because I don't want any surprises because you can check. Some people right. do check. And that's almost separate from whatever's going on in your work life. What you said, Noreen, made me think of an, a reaction I had to this piece that I'm not necessarily proud of. And I'm not sure if this is being unfair to the people who are making these kinds of decisions, but I was kind of like... At a certain point, you can stop making more money. Like if you really wanted to spend more time with your kids, like you really don't need to make that much money. Or you could hire a nanny or something like or, 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 you know, an assistant to work part time to help you manage all the tasks in your house. Like it it seemed like there was a little I know people have, you know, law school debt and whatever. And that is no joke. But at a certain point, I'm like, it's could you be a little less rich and have a little more gender equity in your relationship. Like, I would love to see a piece that just talks to, like, 50 couples who have a situation like this and asks them, why is the woman the one staying home? Like, what factors led to you making that decision? Because I know it's a confluence of a ton of factors. The, mm-hmm. Like, in this case, it seemed partially random, like – the the woman in the couple graduated during the Great Recession, and she didn't have great job prospects. The man graduated two years later. He got, he was making more money, and then but then she says something like, "Well, I also kind of assumed that because I was a woman in a heterosexual relationship, I would be the one taking on the bulk of the tasks." Like, okay, why? You know, like, did you want to do that? Because there's, I've seen a lot of sort of conservatives and libertarians on Twitter being like, "Well, this is these people made this choice." 
who are we to say that this choice is wrong or, you know, who are they to complain about that there's sexism at play here? But I feel like there's if you dig a little bit deeper, you can it, it exemplifies the fact that there's still a lot of latent sexism, even among couples who might think of themselves as like slightly enlightened or progressive or whatever, or like feminists in their personal and professional lives. Totally. And I, I feel kind of weird about it because if you look at the bigger picture, actually, there's a way that these women are making the human choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, right. okay, you could flip the script and be like, be the, the half of the couple who's like, I'm going to work 80 hours a week. But like, what's the joy in mm-hmm. working 80 mm-hmm. hours a week? Um, yeah. Like, actually, there's kind of a nice thing about spending time with your family. It just, you know, if you want to be working outside the home, it like sucks that it comes at you know, the choice between them. Um, but like it, yeah, it, I, to me, the weirdness comes with the, like you were saying, the just endless drive to, to make more money. And I think at that point it's not about money. Right. So there is the sense of winner take all, you know, you either make a million dollars or no dollars. Um, but there's also something going on that Derek Thompson in an essay for the Atlantic has called workism, mm-hmm. which is somewhat distinct, I think in his telling from workaholism, I think in the idea that to, to be addicted to your work or to be obsessed with your work is almost a religion. It's like a way to insert meaning into your life. Right. And, it's the, the very crooks of your identity. Right. And so if huh. you're someone who's not getting meaning, like throughout human history, people have gotten meaning from their family relationships, I think primarily. Not all people and, and certainly by any means, but relationship to work seems to be crowding that out more often than not, which I thought was interesting. You know, I'm someone who is really fulfilled by my work. And yet I can read an essay like this and be sad and <laughs> be like testifying. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like a tough thing because you do if you're spending 40 hours a week, if you don't work at the greedy professions, like it should be something that you love and get meaning from. Right. You're spending more time doing that than almost anything else. And yet, like, how do you how do you maintain a healthy relationship to work? June, do you think that we've opted out of these conflicts with our homosexuality? <laughs> to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, there, is, there are certain obvious ways in which uh, same-sex couples avoid some of the kind of habitual ways of falling into things. However, I know that I do feel a bit guilty about the division of labor, let's put it, in my household, just because I don't do many things that I don't like, hmm. which is kind of the definition of adult, right? Doing things you don't really want to do, <laughs> it, but you have to do. Is the definition? I think so. That's is such that? a depressing definition, but it makes <laughs> a lot of sense. I mean, it's like those bits of adulthood that people annoyingly refer to as adulting. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we don't ever argue. And if... If, you know, she was trained as a therapist. If she doesn't say anything, then I presume it's okay. And so, but do you think so? I will never forget this. Uh, a piece I wrote about this study a couple years ago, where researchers asked people to read a little blurb about a fictional couple, and then divide chores among the the two members of those fi- of the fictional couple. And in a lot of the cases, uh, you know, it was. I think the study was specifically designed to test uh, people's perceptions of same-sex couples. So mm. it would be a same-sex couple, the partners, you know, they're they're 
personalities would be like, one loves rom-coms and shopping. One loves sports and action movies. Like, it was very clear who the more feminine partner was. Mm -hmm. Even when the feminine partner worked more and made more money, the people in the study assigned, quote-unquote, feminine chores to that person. So spending more time with the kids, doing laundry, cooking. Um, And I think, I mean, I have seen in in not that every same-sex couple has like a more feminine or a more masculine partner but I think that there are ways that gender dynamics still play out you know traditional gender dynamics play mm-hmm. out in same-sex couples and it also has to do with you know when if like two women are having a baby together it, at least among the people I know a lot of times the more feminine partner is the one that feels comfortable <laughs> being pregnant and and is the one that carries the baby. And so, like, in, in that case, that person is going to be sort of the default primary caregiver at first. Those are just, like, a couple ways that right. I, I think it can replicate. I was talking to a coworker about this, and she was like, you know, I wonder if talking – if this piece or, – or if researchers talked a little bit more to same-sex couples about how they split things up, mm-hmm. we might get a, even a little more insight into – what factors are at play when people make these choices. Yeah, and I would just add that I think there's a little bit of, I I guess you would call it internalized homophobia in my own feelings about this, because as I've probably expressed, I do feel a little bit guilty about the division of labor in my household. And partly that's because I think I do get the traditionally masculine benefit. And that makes Hmm. me feel extra bad because I'm really very uncomfortable with roles. And I would never want to be like mm, the more masculine partner or the butch, like that really creeps me out. And so mm-hmm. I think like, am I actually responding to that rather than just like, you know, it works out just pretty okay. Um, but I maybe I'm actually having weird feelings about rather than about the actual presenting issues. Yeah. People people choose the chores that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And like, it's it sucks, but like I hate taking out the trash. And so I don't like it, which, <laughs> right. but it feels like such a cliche. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Well, we'll talk more about this in our, is it sexist segment about gamifying the division of household labor. I'm very excited about that. Listeners, let us know what you thought of the article. If you read it, uh, you can email us at the waves at slate.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply all right olivia munn last week Olivia Munn, the actress, tweeted a screenshot of an essay that she had written criticizing the celebrity fashion blog, Go Fug Yourself. The blog is run by two women, Jessica Morgan and Heather Cox. They had recently run a couple of, you could say, negative pieces about outfits that Munn had worn to fancy events. Um, So Munn gets on Twitter with this essay that says, what Morgan and Cox do on their blog is anti-feminist. It's hurtful. She likens it to body shaming. She says they need to acknowledge the part they've played in the suppression of women and that just because you're a woman does not mean you're not a part of the problem. She says what the blog does is neither good nor beautiful. 
that the two writers are not legitimate critics. She can't believe they're making money off of the perpetual minimization of women and the propagation of the idea that our worth is predominantly or singularly tied to our looks. So she's basically saying these fashion critics are, you know, being sexist. And she almost like places her critique of them in the context of the Me Too movement. Um, So a lot of people, especially fans of the blog, were confused and angered because they say this this blog, Go Fug Yourself, actually specifically only talks about the choices that people have made about their looks, their hair, their clothes, and not their bodies, and that they talk about people of all genders, not just women. So not only was Mun sort of punching down at these fashion critics who run a blog, meanwhile she's a celebrity, but also that this particular blog was an unseemly target of her anger. Did you guys, do you know about this blog? Do you read it? I had never read it before. Oh, I used to love this blog. I stopped reading it at some point, and I'm not sure why, but in the, like, let's say the late aughts, you know, like 2006 to 2010, I was obsessed with this blog. It was my favorite. Yeah, they they are so funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what they're, it seems actually like they've softened their commentary in recent years. Oh, really? Yes. Like, specifically kind of because they they don't want to be mean. But they were a lot, in the sort of era of, like, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears out on the town, they were, (laughs) in my memory, quite a bit more acerbic. Huh. Yeah, I had heard of the blog, but I had never read it. And so... Honestly, when I first read Olivia Munn's thing, I thought it was a little bit ridiculous to um, like act like what she was saying was part of the Me Too uprising. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I was, I think, slightly more sympathetic to what she wrote than almost anyone else I talked to about it. Um, in part because I know she's had her phone hacked and her nude photos leaked. And so I feel like she in particular might be sensitive to what people are saying about her looks. And, like, honestly, I don't find a lot of the sort of, like, surface level, I don't even want to call it criticism, just, like, this is ugly and here's an analogy about what object it looks like to be, like, particularly trenchant or valuable or even really criticism. And I know that's an unpopular opinion. No, I actually, so as much as I was a devotee of Go Fuck Yourself for a long time, I, I was trying to figure out why I stopped reading it, and I think it stopped feeling good or something, or, like, it stopped feeling original or interesting. And while I do think that Olivia Munn prosecuted her case all wrong, mm-hmm. I actually think <laughs> she really did. Like, you don't invoke yeah. Me Too to, like, have someone talk about how you wore, like, a badly cut suit or whatever. But sh- just because someone is a celebrity does not mean that their life is wonderful and easy and they have a totally thick skin. And even if they don't have a totally thick skin, it doesn't matter because they're sitting on a pile of money and fame. Mm-hmm. Um, those people actually have notoriously thin skin, right? And like, yeah. who knows what's going on behind the scenes? She has not had actually like a career that's been a straight success. Um, and yeah, I mean, it would feel horrible to like put on something and <laughs> like read someone just just tear it to shreds like that does not feel good so what is punching up what's punching down like I think for you know in the in the era when I was reading it it felt transgressive and new and like oh my god you can talk about celebrities this way and 
blogs were sort of not on people's radar. But now, actually, I think there has been a power shift and the Internet has a lot more power than it used to. And so someone like Olivia, Olivia Munn looks at this and doesn't think that it's punching down. Let me play yeah. devil's avocado because I'm actually <laughs> probably pretty much uh, not too far from, from your position. But two pieces of evidence. First of all, I don't think it was appropriate or fair or well-intentioned for Olivia Munn to include a photo of the Fug Girls yeah. in her essay. Essentially, not explicitly, but she was saying, look at me and look at these women. Why? How, how, what gives them the authority to, to talk about me? That felt very uncool. Uh, and then the second thing is we are, I mean, I agree with you. I used to, re- I was, you know, I was aware of them. I wasn't much of a reader, but I used to spend a lot of time with Tom and Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. And I just don't anymore because I guess I'm... Tom and Lorenzo, just for our listeners, is mm-hmm. uh, another fashion blog, right? Right. Who do similar, similar kinds vibes. of things. Yeah, similar vibe okay. of like appreciative. They're not haters. They're not like the Perez Hilton kind of old school, just sniping. They care about the clothes. They write about the clothes, the look. They're not criticizing the person they're very kind of mindful about that and and it's just because i'm not particularly interested in red carpets i'm busy we're all working like billy oh now right who's got time to look at a fashion (laughs) blog but everything has changed you know like the as we've talked about many times on this show you know magazines and magazine covers have lost a little bit of their impact, except, of course, for uh, Noreen's, because of Instagram. <laughs> you know, we don't need access to celebrities to be on the cover of a magazine now because we can just read their own stories on Instagram. Or, you know, just generally the way that circulations have, have fallen for magazines and we just kind of get our celebrity content direct from the source. And then the other thing is, there's a little bit of a Barbara Streisand effect. Like those people who hadn't heard of the of the Fug Girls are now very aware of them. It's a kind of the Barbara Streisand effect, I believe it's called, when somebody with 800,000 followers and a and name recognition tweets about somebody with 100,000 followers and maybe people whose names have slightly fallen off the radar. So it it feels like, what what does she want then? Does she just want the kind of uh, access, guaranteed, friendly magazine cover type coverage it, it there's a there's a slight i guess there's a hypocrisy to it that i'm not really ready to get behind olivia munn on even though i agree i would not want it for one second yeah i think if she was a little bit more famous i would feel a lot mm. better about saying she was completely in the wrong about this mm-hmm. but i don't know like i read some of go fug yourself to you know make sure i could actually talk knowledgeably about this and the the first clause in their description of their site when you google it is fugly celebrity fashion disasters it's it's like if you ran a movie review site and the tagline was like all the dumbest fucking movies like shit on movies yeah i i i went through a couple slideshows and like you know i went through one that seemed to be all you know, complimentary or whatever. But then other things, it it didn't actually seem like real criticism to me. I then looked at Tom and Lorenzo, who have come out and, you know, are defending Go Fug Yourself and saying, like, Olivia Munn, this was unfair. I went and looked at what they said about the same outfits. And it was this pantsuit that she wore. It was a stripy, you know, multicolored pantsuit with, like, a metallic shirt underneath and a little embellishment to tie the jacket in the front. 
And Tom and Lorenzo said something about how uh, women's suits go through phases of like they start out, um, you know, in, in every decade almost, they start out being sort of like simple and more menswear inspired and they get gradually more wild and embellished until it reaches the point of absurdity. And so they were basically like, and now this, you know, suit Olivia Munn was wearing is indicates that we've reached the level of absurdity in this cycle of women's pantsuits. And like that actually taught me something. And I yeah. found it really interesting. And and I understand that in the blogosphere, wow, that really made me sound um, <laughs> extremely old and outdated. You know, that like you need to write a lot of things and mm -hmm. and put a lot of content to make money off of your blog. Um, so you can't always like engage in contextualization of whatever outfit you're criticizing. But I don't know when, when people are coming out and saying go fug yourself is actually like a really important site for fashion criticism. I don't actually think that's what they're even going for. They're well, like a humor site. Yeah, I mean, not all, like, Tom and Lorenzo is one brand of fashion criticism, and, like, they do contextualize it a ton in historical knowledge, and that doesn't have to be the only kind of fashion criticism. Sometimes you want to look at something and have someone, like, say what you're thinking in the lizard part of your brain, which is, like, that's a clown suit. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> particularly, like, with celebrity clothes, where it's sort of, like... Where they're trying to get your attention. They're trying to get your attention. Like, they are... Yeah, I mean, celebrity fashion is actually less ridiculous than it used to be, although now it seems like we're entering a phase again. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Tom and Lorenzo can tell me why. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> but there was kind of an era, and this was when I was reading it, where it was, like, we were all wearing these unflattering low-rise jeans and all these things that, like, the fashion industry was telling us were the cool things, and these were the people who were selling it to us, right? These beautiful women. And I, I know that they do write about men too, but like, so so we were being sold all of these trends that were frankly like unflattering for our bodies. And there did feel like something radical about them saying like, this doesn't work. Hmm. The emperor has no clothes. You know, that, that to me was the message from the beginning. And I think sort of is still what they're saying. Like, actually, like Olivia Munn, your stylist is doing you no favors, mm -hmm. right? Like she's, you know, maybe she's gotten this for free. Maybe she's had you pay for it. But like, you're you're supposed to be advertising for someone their clothing essentially by wearing it in public and like I'm not sure it's working for you you know mm -hmm. like that to me there's some value in someone just calling it as it is and making it sound amusing as you do it because the, the fashion industry has every interest in making us make wear more and more ridiculous things that don't necessarily flatter or um, work and to be the Tom and Lorenzo of this conversation and to contextualize a little <clears throat> bit I think we should note too that one of the reasons that Olivia Munn's Twitter screenshot essay got this response was because it came on the heels of other celebrities kind of picking on people who, you know, are, are at pretty much at the bottom of the pile, like Ariana Grande making comments later deleted about bloggers and Lizzo making criticism of, of music critics who were not themselves musicians. And it, I think there was something about that particular moment that made people, especially journalists, want to say, just wait a minute here. Yeah. What is it exactly that you want? Do you just want us to be quiet and only say nice things? Like, let's just take a moment to to assess what you're really asking for. So I think we shouldn't ignore that kind of bit of context. Yeah. And 
I think the internet and Twitter specifically, it's it's made criticism easier to launch from both directions. Yep. So it's easier for a celebrity to see a tweet from like some random person, even somebody who doesn't have a, a fashion blog and, and have, you know, there's been a lot of cases of celebrities retweeting a random person who said something mean about them. And then, you know, all of their hundreds of thousands of followers go after that one random person. Blake Shelton is famous for doing that, mm-hmm. or he used to do that. But it's also easier for celebrities, you know, because as you said, June, they're not forced to wait to, you know, be on the cover of a magazine to say something nice. They can just be on Twitter and say something rude whenever they want. It's easier for them to sort of hit back against people who say mean things about them. Yeah. Although what they perceive as mean things, which, you know, in the case of music criticism, oh, is yeah. surely much, much less personal than what you criticizing yeah. someone's outfit or the way they're wearing their hair. Yeah. I-, I would just love to see all red carpet celebrities wearing what I'm wearing right now, what Noreen's wearing. I don't even know what you're wearing, Christina, but I'd love to see like a Not the next red carpet minute. ready, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, sweater and jeans all yeah, around. Exactly. I don't know that we would really want that. All right. Listeners, do you read Go Fug Yourself? What did you think of Olivia Munn's essay? You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. HBO has a new show out this spring, Gentleman Jack. It's British. It's gay. June. Bring us up to speed. Well, Gentleman Jack, it's like a show that is created exclusively for me. I love (laughs) Sally Wainwright, the creator of the show. She is, for people who like British shows, she's also the creator of like Last Tango in Halifax, Scott and Bailey, Happy Valley. She's a fantastic uh, auteur. And this show, like I think every one of her shows, is set in Yorkshire. Uh, This one is, is historical, like her movie last year about the Bronte sisters and it is about a real person and Lister played by Suran Jones who was widely considered I don't know quite by how many people to be the first modern lesbian she was an unapologetic and and you know did not hide in any way her identity and she married a woman in the 1830s and she was also somebody of like Somebody with a restless mind, like very inquiring. She wasn't allowed to go to university because that wasn't permitted to women at that time. But she had insatiable curiosity about a wide range of things from coal and business to brain surgery. And this show, which has eight episodes, I've only seen three so far, two have aired thus far on HBO, is a kind of a gentle story. It's about her. It's about her falling for another woman, the other woman falling for her. There are some sort of soap opera-ish subplots. In that sense, it is very much like uh, a typical Sally Wainwright show. Um, but there is also, like, it's based on truth. Anne Lister very famously wrote extensive, she kind of had graphomania. Her, I think her diaries are something like four million words. And the juicy bits were in code, which was only decoded a couple of decades ago. So, you know, there's, there's, there are real people, real histories involved. And it's basically uh, a long frock soap opera with girls kissing girls. <laughs> uh, what did y'all think? I thought for the whole first, I'd say the whole first episode, uh, because it, it comes out with, you know, a couple expository like subtitles or whatever like Halifax 1830 I thought it was taking place in Canada me too I was like googling they need to yeah I was like oh I who 
Halifax is not a very well-known place in England. How well, are we it, it is if to you're know? a Sally Wainwright fan because of Last Tango in Halifax. <laughs> but I was like, really? This is very civilized for what I would imagine the Canadian frontier to be in 1832. It was <laughs> yeah. like, so confusing. Well, I think actually the Yorkshire in 1832 might have been less civilized than the Maritimes in 1832. But who knows? <laughs> Um, you not think well, once the, the I got, Northern English accents might no, have been I mean, a tip that, on that? That's what tipped me off. Well, I was, I was like, like, maybe huh. they're immigrants. And then I, I was thinking all about, like, how do accents even form? Yeah, you know, that, so it's yeah. – uh, yeah. I once I got over that, um, I still found it hard to follow mm-hmm. or or maybe I didn't even really desire to follow yeah. the, yeah. all of these subplots that are yeah. happening. Yeah. You know, there's – a really freaking dumb one about like Ann Lister's assistant who gets pregnant and then mm-hmm. like her lady's maid kind of like the lady's maid yes thank you I love how you gave her <laughs> a very 21st century title but that's a that's a classic of the genre is yeah. the lady's maid gets knocked up you yeah. know and I will also is say it? I realize I'm cutting you off uh, Christina yeah, sorry, in, my, in, my, in my crucial defense of Sally Wainwright and her <laughs> genre but that is very very typical of her so my favorite of I, I like a lot of her shows um, but I would say my favorite is Last Tango in Halifax in part because there's one storyline that I'm obsessed with and that I literally wore out the screener that uh, PBS sent because I just kept re- <laughs> rewind and it was a, like a Wait, DVD. was it a VHS? Oh no, it wow. it was DVD but I actually you wore it out You can wear because, out a DVD? Yes because I just kept going to the same bits because I think in all of her shows she is quite like she started in soap operas and one of the wonderful things about her pieces is she has this like stable of actors that she works with over and over and most of them started in the what is considered the low class northern soap opera Coronation Street and you know everybody just writes off the actors who are in those things and yet Sally Wainwright has worked repeatedly with many of these actresses, including Saran Jones, and they are revealed to be amazing actresses. Sarah Lancashire, blah, blah, blah. I've got come so far off track. But <laughs> what was I saying? But one of the, This is like, an important context. Thank a, you, Jean. Important context. I'm Tom and Lorenzoing. So <laughs> one of the things that happens in Sally Wainwright, she's essentially at heart a soap opera writer. I, I don't say that with any tone. Oh, I can I love tell. That. I love that. And so there's like 15 subplots. I think that everybody has a different one or two that they care about. I could care less about Eugenie and, and that nice outdoor servant. I mean, I don't oh, care. I don't care like, about any of them really except Cole. Oh, you Actually, care about the coal? I only care about the coal, really. Because I, I my, my, where I grew up, my village once had the most productive pit in Europe. Closed wow, in the congratulations. 60s, but still. Yeah, sure. And we, we actually, I'm <laughs> going to give a little bit more context. It sounds euphemistic. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> gonna, I'm just going to go back to my, my hometown and tell you that the other thing is we now, it closed in the early 60s, but the, the pit wheel is now on the, on the common and there's a plaque and it says, <laughs> the, the seam was never exhausted. Like that's the thing we're most, <laughs> we're most proud of. There's still coal down there. We're everything a euphemism up. in England? <laughs> everything. Uh, we should have never yes. chosen this topic, clearly. <laughs> Um, it's coal hour. Judy sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the subplots <laughs> of Gentleman Eugenie Jack. And, yeah. Eugenie and the guy who wants to marry her because he's in love with her, but he doesn't speak French. Eugenie only speaks French and couldn't care less about this other guy. It was like, it's so cringy to me. And then, the you know, there's like these sort of slapstick moments where they're trying to communicate in French. And mm-hmm. l- like the whole upstairs, downstairs drama is not one that um, dr- draws me in. And I think I could have forgiven that if the main 
plot, the sort of like love story, if you want to call it that, between Anne Lister and her lover, who's also named Anne, which I love so much. One's Uh, got a knee on the end, the other doesn't. I'm sure that makes all the difference. Yeah, even that didn't titillate me as much as I wanted it to. I think because... I mean, one thing I do like about it is that you're never quite sure, at least not in the first three episodes, which I watched, whether they're actually in love or if this is a sort of exploitative thing where Ian Lister is just trying to get this other woman's money. And is this other woman actually being opened up into these you know, desires that she was capable of all along? Or is she just a little bit lonely and depressed and, and sort of vulnerable? But it's they spend all their time talking about their relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not any time actually having a relationship. Like, I'm not convinced that they they actually have any chemistry beyond just, like, the, the, the chemistry that Saran Jones brings to her own part, mm-hmm. um, which she is extremely sexual and Wait. sensual. Christina, do you like period dramas in general? Or are you No, sure? and that might be my problem. Okay, because you sound so allergic to the form. Like, everything you're saying, it's like, yeah, this is how they are. Like, <laughs> it opens with a stagecoach, yeah, and yeah. then there are, like, these long drawing room scenes. There's where you... so much bustling. <laughs> like, everyone just bustles so much room to room, so much stomping and walking and, like, lifting of petticoats. Oh, yeah. Um, it's the best. I love it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have to say, too, that stomping is another Sally Wainwright thing. Her, her really? The characters that she loves, so, for example, Caroline in... Last Tango in Halifax, there are weirdly probably like about 15 minutes. If you took all the seasons and just isolated the scenes of Caroline just walking in a very strong, swaggery manner through corridors, it would probably be about 15 minutes. Like she loves that idea. I think she really takes that as something that indicates character. It's very odd and and very Wainwrightian. A lot of the fun of period dramas is you read so much onto these like glimpses Mm -hmm. and hand-holding and what feels both radical and maybe a little bit unbelievable to me about this is the way that she really has sort of transposed the way that heterosexual relationships in these sort of Jane Austen type of things um, took place onto a lesbian relationship, right? So Miss Lister (laughs) is totally after the younger woman for her money. Miss Walker's money. Miss Walker's money, right, totally, which is a classic plot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And... (laughs) She's 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 got hundreds a year, thousands. A year. I don't know. They, they've always got a certain like <laughs> right. amount a year, and it's like a major like thing. And you're supposed to understand how much it represents, and you're kind of like, I don't know. She sounds rich. I guess they, they go to the season in London. But but everyone, I mean, at least in, I've only watched two episodes. People are fairly just like sort of taking her for what she is, and mm-hmm. she has these relationships, and her family is like extremely understanding of them at least so far um people sort of understand her to be an unusual person but that's like mostly the force of her personality she's a like a brash huge personality Mm -hmm. with you know with a lot of moxie i don't know Mm -hmm. that just made her sound like like gidget or something (laughs) um but but uh so far it's it's all just very natural and accepted and it seems like every you know every other um, well-off woman in Yorkshire is secretly a lesbian Um, (laughs) yeah yeah that is one thing that I liked about it the fact that her success with women she has or has had several lovers seems to suggest that like women all over the place could possibly be seduced into lesbianism if given the right you know very persistent 
suitor. You know, it, it's just like the suggestion of sexual fluidity in that time was very appealing to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, not seduced into lesbianism, but into what appear to be very fun and, you know, happy making sexual relationships with women or flirtations with women that seem to offer more pleasure and more fun, but that for most of them, they know are not actually a viable long-term option, which is something that's very upsetting, not surprisingly, to Anne Lister, who is not minded to have a sort of under-the-table, so to speak, relationship, but instead prefers to be open. And, and that is just not something that most of the women that she dallies with can even consider. Right. It makes a kind of structural sense because the seductions are so formal in that era for men and women or not even seductions. They're often like business arrangements. So if right. you're marrying yeah. some like yeah. old guy who's got a bunch of acres and you have no chemistry with him whatsoever and someone is like actually seducing you and because she's another woman, you like get all this time alone together mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, she's super charismatic. You sort of understand it but you know i haven't gotten this far in this series and i don't think it's a spoiler to say it because it's in all the coverage but they marry Mm -hmm. um so is this like a totemic bit of lesbian history or did you guys know about it before no i mean i so i grew up actually yorkshire is our great rival i'm from the old lancashire so (laughs) the coal we know know. Ah, yes (laughs) and we saw the war the roses we we they're our great rivals we're like texas and oklahoma is lancashire and yorkshire and I was always very interested in this kind of history. And I guess I'd heard her name, but I guess also I left Britain before the diaries were decoded. So I don't, I wasn't particularly familiar. I don't think it's that famous of a story. I mean, it is now, of course, mm-hmm. but I don't think it has been that famous of a story. And I certainly had never heard of this married female couple, um, which also might be just a, like an indication of what was important at the time that I was growing up in Britain. I hadn't heard of it. I hadn't yeah. heard of her at all. Yeah. And I think, too, though, that the the sticking to the truth of the outline, like including having two main characters called Anne, might be like a little bit of a limitation. I, I, I get that the, the part about people not seeming too bothered about her affect makes sense to me because she is upper class and she also is very sniffy um, when her sister uh, has a suitor who is... Uh, trade. trade, you know, a commercial gentleman. They've, she says she's like, she refuses to, you know, I mean, she doesn't have the right, but she, you know, she's one of these people who says, well, I can't marry trade. And so, you know, she's, she is a woman of her class. And I, I do like the way that that's introduced because, um, you know, that the flaws of that are, are definitely not hidden. Yeah, she right. kicks she's out even a tenant skin- yeah. who's old and she's because he's not also- producing enough rent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked the way the, and I imagine this is truthful, the way it seemed like financial or social concerns might sort of override concerns about sexual propriety. Like mm-hmm. the way that Ann Lister explains to her elderly aunt, you know, her relationship or desired relationship with her lover, Anne, it makes it seem like they're relatives could be possibly pleased with the fact that, oh, well, at least they've, you know, partnered with someone of the same social class and mm-hmm. and they'll be keeping the wealth within the family or or bringing wealth to their family. And I, I read an interview with Sally Wainwright where she said that women probably liked Ann Lister a lot because she gave them a sense of their own worth. Mm. 
And I take that to mean not only that she sort of expanded the idea of what a, a woman could be and that, yes, women are smart and women are capable and they can travel and, you know, climb mountains and dissect things. <laughs> but this woman was actually treating other women as equals in a way that probably all of their male suitors never did. Yeah. I'm very curious, Christina, if Anne Lister, as portrayed in Gentleman Jack, was transported into 2019, do you what like how would she be? Would she be a likable person? I kind of think of her like clearly like her identity is clear to me. You know, she would be a stud, I guess. And that would be like I know the kind of person she would be. But I don't know that I would like her. I think she would be almost like an Elon Musk type character. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know that she would be somebody I wanted to be friends with, even if I thought her style was super cool. Yeah, I did know one woman in college who I think uh, reminded me of Ann Lister in that I think she would be kind of snooty and possibly uh, like conservative in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. But but then again, you know, perhaps living in an era of broader acceptance mm -hmm. would have softened her and 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 made her feel more uh, kinship with members of our other marginalized communities. I it's possible. I'm not sure. I think she'd be a professor sleeping with her students. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to share your thoughts about the show with us, you can email us at thewavesatslate.com. I'm going to keep watching it. I don't know about you guys. For sure. Yeah, me too. All right. Recommendations. Who'd like to go first? I would love to recommend a podcast from the CBC called Uncover the Village. The Village is actually season three of Uncover. I think you have to look up Uncover to find it in a podcasting app. Um, but this season is about the sort of history of disappearance and murder of gay men in Toronto's gay village starting in the 1970s. And it's a really interesting kind of look back. I mean, because it's the CBC, they have access to amazing archival audio, coverage of news stories from back then, how these murders were covered, how the disappearances weren't covered in a sense. And people are, you know, the journalist who is the... Uh, the host, Justin Ling, has talked to a bunch of either people who were activists in those days when there really weren't very many, you know, open activists. There were, you know, they talk about how there was basically, you know, the lawyer and the priest or the pastor. They were the two people that everybody went to if you needed either a quote from a gay person or the police needed to find out something about the gay community. And they talks also with policemen from those decades. And it's a very measured, very kind of gentle documentary. It doesn't traffic in outrage, even though what's revealed is is very outrageous. And I just think it's a very well put together uh, podcast. It's called Uncover the Village. I would say uh, Uncover is also the podcast that gave us the Nexium season in, in its first season. Oh, so I've been wanting to listen to that. Yeah. The second season is about a plane crash and was not quite as successful, I would say. But um, I really recommend The Village. Noreen? I want to recommend Ruth Reichel's latest memoir, Save Me the Plums. I love Ruth Reichel's writing. She has what has always been for me like a fantasy life. Mm -hmm. um, I particularly liked her memoir. I think it's Comfort Me with Apples. When she, no, it might be Tender at the Bone. Whatever. Anyway, it's the it's the memoir where she's living in Berkeley like and hanging out at Chez Panisse all the time. And to me, it's just like the most perfect 
way to spend your 20s and 30s and I it's like a total fantasy for me but what <laughs> after being the restaurant critic at the New York Times she then went and ran Gourmet magazine and and reinvigorated it in the dying days of Condé Nast and that's what she's written this memoir about and so if you like Ruth Reichel and or Gourmet this will or you like magazines. Um, I sort of came at it from all of those angles. Um, it's a really fun read. There's sort of the excesses of Condé and then the quick fall. And there's tons of sort of insider baseball gossip. Um, she does have a little bit of a like faux naive tone in the beginning that's sort of irritating. Like, oh, who me? Like inside the halls of Condé Nast? Uh, which, which I didn't love. But in general, I just am happy to be in her presence. So... Um, Yes, I will read anything by Ruth Reichel, including her crazy tweets, which are like these like Zen koans about like, you know, the dew in the Hudson Valley and, and the, <laughs> the like, you know, the perfect like bowl of saffron rice that she's eating. They're like crazy and weird. And I love the performance art of it. So maybe a general Ruth Reichel recommendation, but specifically <laughs> the most recent memoir. That sounds great. Um, I am recommending a book called Baby Precious Always Shines. It's a collection of love letters between Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. I initially got the book because I am looking for readings for my wedding. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to like have a love letter from like famous lesbians? I don't think I'm going to find something in this book. (laughs) So it's edited by Kay Turner, who has a really, really great and fascinating introduction. And in general, it's just kind of a bracing and like voyeuristic in a very good way to be part of this sort of intimate exchange. You know, I think a lot of collections of love letters offer that, but Mm -hmm. particularly this one, because Gertrude Stein is a part of it. There's a lot of amazing like playfulness with language and which sort of takes the idea of like a couple's language or inside jokes to another level. You can really see like the comfort they brought each other and their daily lives, how they take care of each other. But also a lot of them are about poop. So (laughs) one thing I learned in the introduction to this book is that for a long time, people reading the love letters from Gertrude Stein and the ones from Alice B. Toklas thought that the phrase having a cow and the the image of a cow was like about orgasms. But actually it's about poop. It's like... (laughs) And I think that it was partially a sexual thing for them, you know, sort of like baby play, I guess you might call it. Oh, I think yeah. I, I'm like speculating a little bit here, but but Kay Turner does say say so that in her introduction that that was probably part of it. Wow. But yeah, a lot of the poems have to do with um, poop. So wow. it's really fascinating. I feel like I'm seeing a whole another side to these like historical figures who I've always found incredibly exciting. Why don't you want to read the wedding? I don't get it. What's wrong? I think we could, I guess if I hadn't explained it on this podcast and no one had read it in the book, they, we could have just glossed over those lines and pretended they weren't about poop. But now that I know it, um, I think I'm going to have to find something else. So uh, listeners, if you have any recommendations for other great, wedding readings we're like down to a month and we still have to pick something so (laughs) uh but yeah i do recommend the book it's it's really you know a a pretty quick read and a lot of fun wow all right that's our show thank you so much to our production assistant alex barish and our producer danielle hewitt if you want to tweet at us we're at june thomas at noreen malone and at c underscore cotarucci For June Thomas and Noreen Malone, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.